we're going to look at seven words that Jesus spoke from the cross right at the end of his life on this earth. But first of all, I want to just look back real briefly at what we talked about last week. Some things that I think we need to really cling to. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, when Paul says, I'm determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul had one vision, to know Jesus and to know him crucified because there's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the blood of Jesus. There's power in the resurrection of Jesus. And the devil does not want us to meet today and tell, and for us to testify about our faith in what Jesus Christ has done. He does not like that at all. There's opposition to that. But our God is in control. Our God is, is full of just power today. And the central message today, we always talk about, and that is Calvary here. Because without the cross, there can really be no Christianity. And then we talked about in Revelation chapter 13, where we talked about the fact that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, before anything was ever formed, before obviously a blade of grass or one drop of the ocean water, before anything was spoken into existence. In God's mind, before the foundations of the world, the lamb of God was slain. What it says, too, is before the foundations of the world, eternity passed, that you and I were on the mind of God Almighty. He knew when you and I would be born. He knew where. He knew the circumstances around your birth. He knows us, and he has a plan and a purpose. And Jeremiah chapter 29 talks about that. You know the plans and purpose plans for you and not to harm you, but plans to give you a hope and a future. And so God Almighty has a plan for our lives. And from eternity past, we were on his mind. And before the foundations of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. So when, when it came up to the time where Adam sinned, that we know that was not a surprise to God. God didn't have the scramble to try to put things in place to be able to redeem mankind. All of these things were in place and in the fullness of time, I believe it's Galatians 4, God sent forth his son exactly in the perfect timing. And when you look at prophecy in the word of God, things will happen just according to the word of God, exactly. And I don't know that time when Jesus will come back, but I do know that I believe things there are things that are happening. We need to be ready. And that's something that Jesus has been telling his followers to always be ready because Jesus could come back at any time. And you know, the bad news about all of this is all of us have been infected with that sin bug. We've all been infected. But by one man's disobedience, Adam, one man, Jesus, redeemed us. He came in and he atoned for our sins is a word. He redeemed us as because as, we were in slavery to sin. We've been bought out of that slavery to sin. So I want to talk about today seven last words that Jesus talks about. Very important, very instrumental when we talk about this. Because to the Christian, obviously, the cross is much more than just two pieces of wood put together. I was watching TV here the other day, and someone was being arrested, and they had a long chain around their neck, and they had a cross there. And this guy, he was a, a real rambler. He was, he was fighting with the police and everything else. And yet, you know, sometimes people wear those as, as uh, sort of ornaments. They don't really, it's not any symbolic meaning to it as far as the cross is concerned. And to the Christian, though, 
that's obviously as much more it is talking about in this expression, meaning the death of Jesus and all. It's Jesus stretched out between heaven and earth, suffering more than anyone has ever suffered for you and me. The cross is Jesus as our Savior. There's no holier place that we can ever hope to come to. The cross is that place to where heaven's love and heaven's justice meets. Jesus was stretched out between earth and heaven, and he paid the penalty for our sins. He took our sins upon him and all the sins of the world. So there are these seven sayings that I believe are really so wonderful. Listen to them as you turn to Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Ed, if you'll get that, please, sir. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Y'all will recognize all of these things that uh, Jesus says right at the end of his life. Luke 23, verse 34. 34. 34, verse 34. Y'all will recognize this. And says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. So who was Jesus referring to? Anybody? Was he, was he, everybody. Was he talking to the teachers? of the law? Was he talking to uh, the priest? Was he talking to his executioners there? Was he talking to his soldiers? Everybody's going, yeah, you're right. All of you are right. We'll lead up to. He's forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And so actually, he's talking to all of us, all of us today. We all uh, nailed Jesus to the cross in that, not actually in that sense that we think, but he was nailed to the cross because of the sins of the world. We're all found guilty here. And so, obviously, I did and you did. And so we have all, and certainly those who nailed him physically to the cross, were sort of being led along and blinded by evil. They were swept away by the power of Satan. And so were you and I. We all sinned, the Bible said, and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody has sinned. We're all infected. We're all tainted. We all have that, that sin that needs to be atoned for, and Jesus Christ came. And so we obviously uh, nailed him to the cross. There's an old Negro spiritual that said, asked the question, were you there when they crucified my Lord? They crucified the Lord. It would be true to say we crucified the Lord. Every one of us is equally guilty. We nailed him to the tree. We nailed him to the cross there. We were blinded by evil. We were, we were so corrupted in our sin that in somehow God's Spirit touched us. We recognized our sinfulness and our need of a Savior, and we bowed our hearts and bowed our heads and said yes to Jesus. That's what it's all about. It's the wonder of this word from the cross there. Also, is there is forgiveness, forgiveness here. When he says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness for the disciples, forgiveness for the soldiers, for the execution party that nailed Jesus to the cross, forgiveness for you and for me. Thank God there's forgiveness, but it's a forgiveness that requires for us to be taken individually. We have to receive that forgiveness. 
The forgiveness was for the sins to take away the sins of the world and for all who will believe upon his name, who will call upon the name of the Lord. That forgiveness is there. In 1 John chapter 1, it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and he'll forgive us of all of our sins, and he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness for you and for me. It takes on that personal application here. Forgiveness has always been the hallmark of Christianity. Obviously, you remember there when Stephen was getting ready to be stoned, remember what he said? He prayed this. He said, do not hold this sin against them. Now, non-Christians may have in their hearts the unforgiving spirit, but Christians know better. We are Christ's men and women, and we must forgive as he forgave. Because Christ forgave me, I forgive those who have hurt me or who have offended me or whatever they have done. I forgive them for that particular reason. I don't know whether you've seen on TV here recently, but in Louisiana, there have been some, uh, some real old uh, black churches that have been burned down. There were three of them, in fact. Y'all may have seen it. It's been on the news and so forth. And these, these um, uh, had a lot of history in these three churches there, and over 100 years in each one in most cases. And I heard the pastor speak on TV about this, and it struck me. He said, you know, he said, I, I forgive whoever did this. He said, because Christ forgave me of my sins, I forgive him or her, whoever was doing it. And of course, they, they have someone in custody. We forgive because he forgave us. Forgiveness is the name there. And so uh, one of the great preachers of the early part of this century, F.B. Meyer, he says this, listen to this, in uttering and talking about Jesus, this first cry from the cross, our Lord entered that work of intercession which he ever lives to continue on our behalf. He thinks not of himself, but of others. He's occupied not with his own pain, but with their sins. He makes no threat, but instead offers a tender prayer of pleading intercession. And when was that prayer answered? It was seven weeks after this, the day of Pentecost there, and 3,000 of those people whom Peter described as the murderers of Christ repented and believed. And in the days that followed, thousands more believed upon the name of Jesus and put their faith and trust in him. And so Meyer is saying here that Jesus during that time, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And so he began that time of intercession. And it continues to this very moment in history and time. In Romans chapter 8, the Bible says that he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he's ever making intercession for you and for me. Isn't it good to know that Jesus is praying for you and me, that Jesus is praying for Lighthouse Fellowship today, that Jesus is praying for the body of Christ today. He ever lives, the Bible says, ever lives for the one thing, to intercede, to pray for you and for me. And it's so important to know that. I believe when we get to heaven, you know, a lot of the things that we kind of muttered under our breath and prayed for and all those things that we'll see that God says, I answered that prayer for you. You didn't realize it, but I answered that prayer. I heard you. I heard you when you muttered it under your breath. I heard you when you cried out from your heart. I heard you. God answers these prayers when we talk to him, being aware. That's why it's so important to have a, a, a just in time prayer life with, with the Lord. 
that time with the Lord and praying and seeking his face. It's important to know that. And so he's interceding for me and you. The second word here is in Luke chapter 23, verse 43. I love this. You're talking about teaching us something. I'll share with you some thoughts about this today. You remember Jesus was between the two thieves on the cross? You remember in everything leading up to this and everything in the future, everything is prophetic in the kingdom of God. All of it's coming about again exactly the way God Almighty says it does. So he's not out of control when things look like they're really haywire. God is completely in control. And remember the two thieves were up there. They'd already bargained and the people had crucified Jesus and, and let Barabbas go, remember? And all, and here Jesus, it had to be, he hung between two thieves. And so there were two attitudes up there on the cross beside him. Uh, obviously, G Jesus was there in the middle, as y'all know the story. And this one thief said, obviously, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And remember what Jesus said here in verse 43. Today, you will be with me in paradise. There was one single need of this one thief, a low-down crook thief, and no telling what else this guy had done. And there was one single need and one sinner there, and Jesus addressed the particular need of this one sinner, this one particular man sitting there. So God was revealing himself. And, and you know... Um, when you talk about this in Isaiah 53, where it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. All of us have gone to our own way. This one thief was up there on the cross. I don't know if you've ever recognized here, why did that one thief um, humble his heart? And he said, today you'll be with me in paradise, and the other one wasn't. Let me give you a couple suggestions here, I believe possibly it would be that this thief had seen the life of Jesus. This thief had seen Jesus going about the countryside, healing the sick, opening the eyes of the blinds, and, and giving salvation to those who will believe and followers of him. Maybe this thief saw Jesus and his attitude towards his accusers and those who mocked him, those who put the crown of thorns on him, those who obviously nailed him to the cross. This thief was there when they were doing this. And so maybe this thief recognized somehow how Jesus responded to the suffering and to the persecution that he received throughout those years of ministry. Maybe this thief thought him. I believe he did. But also, when you think about it, I believe this thief maybe had a slight fear of God in, their, in his heart. This thief had a, a fear of God. He had a fear of God. Now, when I've talked about this in the past over the years, I believe our society has lost the fear of God. And I believe that it's so crucial that that fear of God comes back and, and is somehow imparted back into the church house, back into society, to where we reverence and we honor and we worship the Lord God Almighty. But this, this thief, I believe, recognized he had a fear of God. And let me mention this, no man is beyond hope of redemption in whose soul still lingers some fear of God. If there is no fear of God, then there's more than likely not going to be any repentance. 
but in no man is beyond redemption, beyond being saved, where there's just a slight glimmer of the fear of God in their hearts there. And so as this thief spoke, faith rose in his soul and he blurted out this appeal. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember what the other thief was doing? He's saying, get us out of this mess. Get us out of this, basically, and saying, you know, get us down. If you're the king of kings, mocking, still mocking Jesus, there was no humility. There was pride in his heart. You see, both of those guys deserved what they were getting, but yet one recognized it and the other one didn't. And I believe it was because down deep, maybe somewhere along the way, and we don't understand that mystery of salvation as such a mystery, and yet this one man said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Y'all ever thought about that? Today, today. The Bible says when we're absent from the body, then we're present with the Lord. You're either here or else when, if you're a believer, then you're in the presence of God. There are no L-betweens and no type of holding pattern we go in. There's no soul sleep that is not biblical. We don't go into a sleep. There is a teaching today in the church about we go to sleep for a while, and then when God Jesus comes back, then we're raised with him. No, we go immediately into the presence of God Almighty. Isn't that great? So if you're under surgery and you go home to be with the Lord, you'll be home and you'll be healed. There'll be no more knee pain. There'll be no more heart troubles, no more any of this stuff. Amen. And so he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. But let me share with you about what the word paradise means. It's a Persian word, meaning this, a walled garden. And when a Persian king wished to do one of his subjects a very special honor, he made him a companion of the garden. And he was chosen to walk in the royal garden with the king. It was more than immortality that Jesus promised this penitent thief. He promised the honored place of a companion of the garden in the courts of heaven. You will be with me, Jesus said, in paradise. You will walk in the garden of heaven with me today in paradise. Now, what do you think about when we take our last breath? We'll walk in that garden of heaven and paradise with Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Paradise. You know, I love these uh, Caribbean islands, and I love the Hawaiian islands. I love all these, and you look and you go, this must be paradise. No, it's not. What we're going to walk in is going to be so much greater a walled garden that we will walk with Jesus himself. Can you get any better than that, church? No, you can't. We'll walk there. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. But also, listen to this. I believe this word teaches us something wonderful here, and that is, obviously, is the way of salvation is wonderfully, really wonderfully simple. It's not hard. He didn't have a whole lot of time to kind of pray to sinner's prayer, did he? He didn't have a whole lot of time to come up with theological answers to why he was coming to God Almighty. He just said, remember me, Lord, when you come in your kingdom. And you see, Satan wants us to think that salvation, coming to salvation, is difficult. 
somehow we've got to do this and we've got to do that and all that. And most of the time, Satan will add works to it. You've got to get a little bit better before you come to Jesus. You've got to get a little bit better before you begin to walk with him in the depth of, of intimacy with Jesus. No, you don't. It's simple. It's plain. Remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. A wonderful word, but also this word from the cross reminds us is that the worst sinner can be saved. You look at them on TV, and some I love the crime shows. I don't know. I maybe should have been a, 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 a policeman or something. I don't know. But I like the crime shows. I like to try to solve them. I'm interested in all that and stuff that, and you know, uh, uh, and you look and you see these people and they've done such horrendous things. You think, golly day, Lord, man, they missed the mark so bad. But you see the worst sinner. You know, Paul says, there are no sinners that are worse than me, he basically, because he was killing Christians. And he realized the salvation that God gave him through Jesus Christ. You know, we all are the worst sinners if you want to get down to it. Because we obviously, as mentioned last week, we talked about a little bit, as we've all have missed that mark of perfection, we can't measure up. And so we need a Savior to come in and, and stand in the gap for us to come and impute, impart the righteousness, his righteousness, his perfect righteousness in our lives that we can enter into a holy God's presence. We can't do it otherwise. So even the worst sinner can be saved. No one is too bad to be saved. But another word here in lesson, I believe, listen to this, is that salvation doesn't depend on religious ceremonies or good deeds or any contribution from man. There's no time for any of these things to take place. He didn't have time to kind of get ready, did he? All he said is, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He didn't have time for it. Salvation is not based upon religious ceremonies and trying to some, somehow to go through this, you know, stuff that, that we know, obviously, we, we do. and We worship the king. But sometimes time is too short. And it was the case here with this particular thief. One man said it like this, once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide in the strife of truth and falsehood for the good or evil side. Some great cause, God's new Messiah, offering each the bloom or blight, parts the goats upon the left hand and the sheep upon the right. And the choice goes by forever, twixt that darkness and that light. We may think, that time is on our side, that I'll get wait and get things right before that time comes. And we may not have that time. A lot of people do wait, and they don't know how much time. We see it every day, people going out into eternity. We can't presume on God's mercy, or obviously are delaying trusting in God Almighty. The third word is Jesus. You remember John chapter 19, verse 26 and 27. John chapter 19, verse 26 and 27. Look at what he says. His NIV is saying this. Ed's got it up front up here too. But I love, I'll listen to the, the pages turning any day, trust me. I'm good. I'm good with that. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, got John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here's your son. It's his mother. Why did he change to woman? It's because then at this time, 
Mary had to see Jesus as her, as her Lord. She had to see that change, no longer in that sense. Yes, mother, but he, she had to see there was something glorious about this. Because see, as a mother seeing her son being crucified there on the cross, it was just horrible. If she didn't know there were higher redemptive purposes that were being carried out right before her very eyes, Jesus said. And then remember, as he said to, to John here, he said, obviously, take care of her. Why did not, listen to this and see if anybody, and y'all can answer if you would. Jesus had a family. Mary had a family. Why didn't Jesus have part a part of the family to take care of his mother or this woman? Anybody? Think for just a second. Why did Jesus not have his, his uh, mother taken care of by his immediate, his family instead of John? Interesting. Let me present this to you. Is because none of them had come to faith yet. John had come to faith. I believe John saw the cross, not the fullness of the meeting, obviously, because that's, I believe, progressive. But I believe that John had the faith and understood. And so he went on and he was obedient to the Lord. And he was Jesus' beloved disciple. But John had, uh, had the faith to be able to carry this on. And Mary, John did take Mary into his house. Many believe, and there is some historical evidence that, that John took uh, Mary to the church at Ephesus, went into the city of Ephesus, which is in Turkey. And we know Ephesians is written from that. And again, uh, they believe, many believe that Mary died in Ephesus uh, with John. Uh, John had, was exiled on the island of Patmos, remember, and all, and so forth, wrote, wrote the book of Revelation and all but because he had come to faith. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that John, now, and the understanding, because the Holy Spirit had not been poured out yet, but he, he had faith, he trust in the Lord there. The fourth word is, is in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. Remember that's what happened as Jesus was crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Thought about that scripture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, in this sense, Jesus had a relationship with his father. You remember he would go out on the hillside in the morning and pray and seek his father's instructions for that day which we should do also. But this was a time Jesus had to bear the sins of the world alone, all alone. He took on. And so darkness came in. The fullness of darkness came in, and he took the sins of the world upon his shoulders. Yes, the Father had turned. He could not look upon sin in that way. A lot of theological things being spoken of about that. But Jesus had to be alone at that time because he alone could bear the sins of the world. He was the sacrificial lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world. And the reality manifest of that was a little over 2,000 years ago. We think about it. He had to do this. 
and he had to take it on. So my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, David cries out in Psalm 51. He says, create in me a pure heart, O Lord, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And then he says this, something that is so vital. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Don't cast me from your presence, Lord, please. David is crying out, and that's my cry. Don't do that, and I know he won't, but my cry is, is that I never lose that sense of the awareness of Christ, and that's why I've talked about here every every hour or ever how many times during the day you can stop and reflect and and realize the presence of the Lord is with you. He's here with us today. And you want to stop and thank him and praise him. And maybe even, Lord, I surrender my life to you. What do you want me to do today? I love you. And, and begin to just talk to him and watch how prayer evolves from this recognition of the awareness of the Holy Spirit with you and me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because during that, during that moment of time, as it may be said, Jesus had to do this alone. He had to take the sins of the world upon him. And so we see here that uh, Jesus knew. Isn't it something I'll tell you right now? God, Jesus, knew and had faith in his Father that when he was nailed to the cross and he took the sins of the world upon him, knowing he would be buried, he knew, he knew, he knows, he knew it all better than we do, even than the word. He, he was the word of God. He knew that when he was buried, that his father would be faithful to raise him from the dead. He trusted his father implicitly that he would raise him from the dead exactly the way his father had spoken from eternity past. He trusted him. And you and I are the same way. We don't have the worry and fret. We can trust our Father. Amen? We can. The fifth word is, is in John 19, I thirst, verse 28. I thirst. Remember? The Bible says in Psalm 22, verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned like a pot shared and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. I just want to say about this, he thirsted, yes. But all of prophecy had to be fulfilled. There was not anything left out of prophecy, and God prophetically speaking, what would happen at this time? Not one uh, jot or tittle. Everything was being done exactly according to God's word and being fulfilled. It had to be for God to fulfill the redemptive purposes that he had from eternity past. The sixth word is, is John chapter 19. Now, this is, this is cool. John chapter 19, verse 30. What does Jesus say? It is finished. Everybody, it is finished. It is finished, okay? It is finished here. So what did Jesus mean that it's finished? Did he say that I'm finished, uh, you know, or and all that? Let me tell you, it is finished. It is finished. What he was saying was, is that he had made, he had accomplished, he was victorious over the evil one. He was proclaiming this. 
and he was proclaiming a shout of victory over sin, death, and hell. He obviously, uh, in Galatians 3.15, where it says that he would put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He is ha shouting that it is finished. Now, the rituals, he's not talking about necessarily the rituals of the Jewish religion, but they were finished also. They had served their purpose. They pointed to Jesus. They were symbols of what the reality and what would actually happen when Jesus went to the cross. And, and so they were the religious things they pointed. And they were like, uh, the term is, they were like a shadow. They were like a shadow to the reality of the thing that would happen when Jesus hung on the cross. But what it is finished means is it tells us that nothing is left for man to do but to enter into the results of Christ's finished work. The Greek word for finished here was used in business life. And listen to this. It was a time to indicate that a debt had been paid off in the business world. The debt had been paid off. And so when you and I, it's kind of like this in my P mind of understanding things, is that obviously, you know, uh, I've got a debt to pay, my sin. Who's going to pay for it? And what Jesus does, he takes out a big checkbook and he writes a check to pay off my debt. And he hands it to the Father and he says, here, Father, this is on Jim's behalf. I'm paying off all of his debts. Isn't that great? It is finished. My debt has been paid off, and your debt has been paid off. Now, that's something I can get excited about. My debt has been paid off in full, and it's been paid off in full. There's none of this stuff of kind of going through and, and, and paying a little bit and then coming back or putting things on layaway. Uh-uh. No, he's paid it off, the debt. It's finished. It's done there. The full payment has been made, salvation has been obtained for all who accept and rely upon the finished work of Christ. Amen and hallelujah. The seventh, the last word is, he says this in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Now this, this it just doesn't get any better than this. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Thank you. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. In your hands, Father. He had to die physically. These words tell us that his life didn't just ebb away. In fact, Jesus had previously said that no one would take his life. He laid his life down on his own. He, he gave his life. He was our sacrifice. He died in our place. We should have been the one to die. Jesus took our place there. The last word from the cross, I believe, when you look at it, it's a quotation from Psalm 31 where it talks about to put our trust in God. But I want to look at it like this. He says, when he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. What this does, it speaks of confidence in God his Father that he found security in the Father's hands. In so doing, pointed the way to all who die believing into your hands, 
I commit my spirit. Why? In 1 Corinthians 15, where the sting of death has been taken away, why is it that we're in, we've talked about the peace of God here in situations that could obviously be very serious, haven't we? But obviously, knowing that our spirit is in the hands of God Almighty, I commit myself to you. And when you do that, you have the peace of God that passes all understanding. And Jesus had complete confidence in his Father that when he took his last breath, that things would be put into motion exactly the way his Father had said it. And he was at total peace. Why can we go in surgery or whatever we're facing in life, no matter what it be, it may be a, a sudden heart attack. Or why is it that we can walk in this world that looks full of tumult and full of chaos and full of, of all this anxiety, full of depression, full of all these things happening and have that peace of God that passes all understanding? How can we do that? It's because we have security and confidence in our Father. And Jesus said, and I commit my spirit into your hands. Hallelujah. I'm telling you, you look at these things and how they came about, and you look at the security that we have. You look at none of it was something that we could earn, and you look at the grace, amazing grace, that God gives us. And somehow we came to Jesus, right? By his spirit. You know, when God began to draw me, I, you know, I could, I guess I could have said, no, I'll have a choice, but I didn't. And when God was drawing you, you could have said, no, I don't want any parts of this. I'm a self-made person. I don't need all this religious stuff. Besides that, religion is a crutch. And yet you're here today. You're here to celebrate, aren't you? You're here the word, to hear the word of God. You're here to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords because you know all of us are being prepared anyway. We ain't seen nothing yet, church. We ain't seen nothing yet. I believe before we leave this world that we ain't seen nothing yet. I believe it's going to get even better and better because our God is a God of abundance and extravagance. Not a God of waste, but a God of extravagance. And he sent Jesus in the world to die for your sins and my sins because there is eternal security in the cross. There are a lot of churches that do still teach that possibly, you know, if uh, you sin right before you die, you're out. You're done. Churches say that. And I don't say that we're to sin intentionally, but I want to tell you today, we don't ever know what our motives are. We don't know what our attitudes sometimes are. We don't know what our thought life is like sometimes. But if the all certainly was based on the fact that we had to kind of just keep it all together before we left this world, I'm telling you today, we would have anxiety, wouldn't we? But I believe today that when you accept Jesus Christ in your life as Lord and Savior, and you're a follower, and you'll follow Him. Now, you may fall and someone fall, and 1 John talks about it, that you confess. He said, if we don't, we say we're not sinners, then uh, that we don't sin. He said, he said, if we don't sin, he said, you make God out to be a liar. 
But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we're secure in Jesus, folks. The devil will tell you otherwise. He will tell you when you messed up or maybe you said a cross word or you said something or maybe in your thought life, maybe something came and you went, where'd that come from? And somehow that you're going to lose your salvation. Let me tell you today, that is a real, real bumpy road to try to travel down. You can't do it. God wants us to know we have security. And Jesus had the security of knowing that he was going to be with the Father eventually, that all would be worked out according to God's great plan. The prophet Zechariah looked forward to the coming of Jesus when he said, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to cleanse them from sin and impurity. I want you to just allow these wonderful words that Jesus spoke to just permeate your innermost being. To allow the words of Christ as he spoke, it's finished. When that thief said, today you'll be with me in paradise, realize how great a salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Jesus. You know, um, our banner up here, I told you I love banners. <laughs> this is this is just the beginning. Kathy and all these the gang here, they're going to work on that. We're going to have banners. We'll have banners in time, due season. And I told you one day I walked in church and Cindy and I walked in and, and I think we were trying to look for a church and something we were in between times of ministry or whatever and I walked in and, and uh, on the back, back here in big letters, Jesus is Lord. I went, man, we're in the right place. I was singing to the Lord this morning and, and thinking, reflecting upon him getting ready to come to church this morning. And I was thinking, you know, there's a song that uses the word king, Jesus king, you know. Uh, the resurrecting king is resurrecting me, is the words that go. The resurrecting king is elevation worship. The resurrecting king is resurrecting me. And I thought about it, and I just love the word king and how it's connected to Jesus, because he is our king, right? You know, little words sometimes are, are just so powerful, how, how great. He's our king. He's our Lord. Jesus is Lord. And these words that, that convey a meaning, that go way beyond what we can say, they touch me sometimes. I'll be singing to the king throughout eternity. How about you? I'll be singing to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. His name is Jesus. In the and the the, uh, the Hebrew, it's Yeshua, Yeshua, Amashiach, Yeshua, Amashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Hallelujah, Father, thank you for your word, thank you for your truth, and Lord, <laughs> we just say thank you. That's that's just thank you, thank you, praise you. We don't make it complicated. We just say thank you. And I thank you for this wonderful congregation here today, Lord, and, and, and them coming. And Lord, I believe by your Spirit today, even Holy Spirit, impart to this congregation these words of truth because they have such more deeper meanings than what I can ever exclaim here because it's by your Spirit anyway. And I ask you there, by God, that you would impart these things. 
and that even this time of the season, but beyond, we would really, in our heart of hearts, get a revelation of Jesus and how great He is. Because, Lord, in this dress rehearsal here on this earth, a dress rehearsal for heaven, we want to be ready. So get your bride ready, Lord. Get us ready, Lord. We want to be ready. We honor you today, and we pray these things in the holy and majestic name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.